We are in Luke chapter 1. We're beginning in Luke chapter 1, a short series on the angelic messengers sent by God announcing the good news of salvation promised long ago by the prophets. Uh, the term angels or angelos in the Greek means messenger, one sent by God to bring a message from on high. It is God breaking into this world at a time of great significance. This is often when we see angels, of course, throughout the Bible, when God is on the move and about to do the next great work in redemptive history. Angels are often appear or even uh, bring themselves the revelation to God's people. Think of the angels that were sent by God to Abraham and Sarah to confirm when they spoke to them that within a year, the promised one given to Abraham and Sarah would be born. Sarah will indeed have a son. Or the angels who appeared to Jacob in Genesis 28, where God renews his covenant with him and gives him a wonderful promise of the coming Messiah, who will come to earth one day and fulfill all that the Lord had promised. Or the many other accounts of angels that appear to men as God's messengers. And so at the time of Christ, his first incarnation, or his incarnation, I should say, we are not surprised to see angels everywhere as well as throughout his earthly ministry and in places like the book of Re Revelation. In this brief series, Pastor Fisher and I will be looking at the four main appearances that we find in the New Testament at the time of Christ's incarnation. First, this morning, the appearance of the angel to Zechariah the priest, the father of John the Baptist. Then next week, the appearance of the angel to Mary, the week after the appearance of the angel to Joseph, and then finally, the appearance of the angels to the shepherds. We are in Luke 1 this morning where Luke tells us that he has undertaken to write a narrative of the things that the Lord has accomplished among his people. Dr. Luke, as uh, Paul refers to him as a physician, being the first good Presbyterian in the New Testament, tongue-in-cheek there, he sought to set down an orderly account, right? Orderly account of all the things that the most excellent Theophilus had been taught. And he begins with that account of God accomplishing his work in the world, in the only place that makes sense, according to prophecy. Why do I say it's the only place that makes sense? Because it was what the prophet Malachi, as you heard, uh, said earlier. He must speak first of the forerunner of the Messiah. That's the first one that has to be addressed before he will ever speak of the coming of the Messiah himself. But they are linked together inseparably. Uh, the coming of John is the coming of the good news, as the angel will say. It's the coming of the gospel. John serves as a connection, a link between the Old and the New Testament. And so turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1, which is found on page 1016. We'll be reading verses 5 through 25. Please stand as you give your attention to the word of the ever-living God. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is God's word, or beginning in verse 1, I should say. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, or Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and we bless your name for your word which you have given. Make us a people today and always who believe your word, who receive it with joy, who put it into action, and so we pray that you would bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. People have always, always been fascinated, fascinated with angels. They are, at best, mysterious creatures to us, creatures indeed, because they're so different from us. According to the Bible, they are spiritual beings who have no bodies, but they often take on shape and form in the Bible so that they can be seen by human beings. 
They are often spoke of as having shape and form in many of the Bible passages where we see visions of them. Visions we read in the Bible like Isaiah 6 or the book of Revelation. Because as human beings being always fascinated with them, we realize the fascination is probably rooted in the fact that they are a link for us to another world, a world that is so very different than ours. They have become in history objects of worship for that reason, including in our own day. It was true, even as Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, the letter we looked at last week, one section of it, but in that same chapter, chapter two, Paul writes, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. The writer to the book of Hebrews makes a point that we will see even this morning regarding angels. You heard that passage read this morning in chapter one, but the whole beginning of the book of Hebrews is really showing how angels are less than and Christ is greater than those angels. And the message that he brings is greater than the law mediated through angels under the old covenant. This is what he says. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, and he's referring there to the law, because they mediated the giving of the law, according to scripture, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That is the message of the gospel in Christ and through his apostles, how shall we neglect that salvation that has been spoken of through them? It was declared at first by the Lord himself, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, this idea of believing what the angels said, trusting what they mediated in the law, how much more should we trust Christ, who is greater than the angels? This is one of the great lessons that Zechariah himself will learn as one of God's angels by the name of Gabriel will come and speak truth to him. Well, I want to look at this passage together. It's long. We're going to look at it under really five headings. But before we do, it is important to note some things about the immediate context of the book of Luke here as he begins his orderly account for his dear friend Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus, so that can be dispensed with fairly quickly. But notice these things about the immediate context. There had been 400 years of silence, not hearing from God since the days of Malachi the prophet. These are the days, according to Luke, of Herod the Great. It would be the same Herod that would order the death of all the infant boys when the uh, wise men came to him uh, to seek out Christ and the place of his birth. We're told about Zechariah and Elizabeth in verses 5 through 7. I mentioned earlier as I prayed for uh, Stephen and for Sarah, that these were recognized by uh, all of those around them, Zechariah being a priest, Elizabeth his wife, that they were righteous before God and walking blamelessly with respect to God's law. 
I believe the righteous there is a reference to their positional righteousness in Jesus Christ. And so they believed God and it was accounted to them as righteousness. But they were blameless. That righteousness was lived out in their lives as they sought to be blameless before God. Uh, these were among the many in the days of Christ's incarnation who were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were looking with faith to the time of the Messiah. Think of Simeon, think of Anna, think of Mary and Joseph, and certainly think of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're told as well in these verses that there's a problem with Zechariah and Elizabeth, particularly with Elizabeth, as the scriptures say, she was barren and both were now advanced in years. This should sound from our study in Romans for very familiar to us. This is the story of Abraham and Sarah. And so like Abraham and Sarah, they were given this great uh, problem or difficulty. Elizabeth will later say he, she, the Lord has removed the reproach that she felt among the people uh, because it was a reproach to be barren in those days, clearly. And so she rejoices that God has removed it even in her later years. That's why it will be a time of great joy for everyone. And remember as well that in this this whole story that Luke is unfolding in a very orderly way, you can compare what we see this morning to what Pastor Fisher will uh, look at next week with the angel visiting Mary, and, and we have overlap, we have similarities. There are two announcements that are made, both by the angel Gabriel. The focus is upon two women, Elizabeth in her elderly years, Mary being very young, and then of course their visit together. You have two songs that will be sung in these chapters, one by Elizabeth and one by Mary. And you have the two births themselves that he will clearly uh, lay out for us, the birth of John the Baptist and of course the birth of Jesus our Savior. And then, of course, you have the prophecies that are made by Zechariah regarding John and Jesus, and then the prophecies that are made about Jesus to his parents regarding uh, Christ by Simeon and Anna. So you have a lot of similarities, a lot of overlap. The final thing I want to note about the general sort of introduction or context is note the providence of God in all of this. 400 years of silence. The first time God speaks, he speaks by an angel to a priest in the temple. We'll note later that that is probably in all the Bible, the only place that we see an angel in the temple. Now we have the angels that are part of the, the decorative parts of the temple, the angels, the cherubim on the curtains, as well as the cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant. But all of that is gone, of course, in the second temple. You don't have those things, at least the Ark of the Covenant. And so it's the first time an angel appears. This is all part of God's providence, how he rules and directs and governs all things for the good of his people and for his own glory. So we can't miss any of this as we begin to look at these five points that I've set out before us, really going in the order of the verses. The first thing, of course, is the appearance of the angel itself. The angel we know from later is the angel Gabriel. But this is what we read in verse 8, that Zechariah was serving now as a priest. It was his division's turn, 
and he was chosen. There were so many priests in these days that it was likely, if you indeed were chosen, that it would only be once in your lifetime. So again, think of the providence of God that the one time Zechariah is chosen, his division is chosen being on duty. He was chosen to go into the temple to light the incense and to burn incense there. It was a high privilege for him. And so he's going into the temple. He's on his duty as was the custom of the priesthood. The people are outside. They are praying as was commanded by the Lord during the offering of incense. Remember, the incense are the prayers of God's people ascending to God. So there's all this Old Testament imagery that's happening. Zechariah still part of the old covenant, serving as a priest in the temple, John being the link between old and new. So there's a lot going on here. The people are praying, and as they are praying outside, Zechariah is inside. An angel appears. Luke, being very specific, tells us exactly where it was. He was standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So Zechariah is there. He sees the angel there at the right side of the incense. Again, we note this is probably the only time, and there's some disagreement, but it's really mild, that an angel actually appears in the scriptures in the temple with a message from God, but only this one to Zechariah, because there God had other ways of making known his mind. That is in the Old Testament, there were other ways that God had through the Urim and Thummim by a still small voice from between the cherubim. But the ark and the oracle were not present here in the second temple. And therefore, when an express, one writer says, was to be sent to a priest in the temple, an angel had to be employed, had to be sent. And thereby the gospel, or as Gabriel says later, the good news would be introduced. The law was given first by angels. The gospel would be given now by angels announced both to Zechariah, to Mary, to Joseph, and then to the shepherds and the whole earth. The angels would sound forth the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you have this appearance, which is significant. Again, think of the time in which Luke is writing. It is the most significant time in the history of God's redemption. It's the announcement of the gospel through the Son given to man. And so an angel appropriately is chosen to appear before Zechariah. Now immediately we see in verse 12, this is the second point, we see Zechariah's reaction. Now, this reaction is not uncommon. In fact, it is the reaction that we see all through the Bible. Zechariah, verse 12 says, was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Everywhere angels appear in the Bible where there's an intimate encounter with an angel. There is this response of fear. Again, these are beings from another world, if you will, very different from our own. They come from the presence of God. And so the reaction is common, speaks of how man has so carelessly ignored the biblical account of angels and exchanged it today 
for the impotent and less than intimidating version of cherubs and soft beings with flowing hair and dazzling garments. You may remember Pastor Fisher in times past further describing the ways in which our world uh, treats angels today and how the fear of them is no longer a response because we have just completely ignored, carelessly ignored what the biblical account of angels is. Zechariah's reaction matches that of Isaiah in the temple vision of Isaiah 6. It matches Moses at the burning bush, Daniel at the river, the women at the tomb of our risen Lord, and of John on the island of Patmos. This fear, this natural response, one writer says, is our own inward sense of weakness, guilt, and corruption. The vision of an inhabitant of heaven reminds us forcibly of our own imperfection and of our natural unfitness to stand before God. If angels are so great and terrible, what must the Lord of angels be like? But consider, though he is filled with fear, he is not struck down. How gracious God has chosen to be to sinful mankind in speaking to us, not through angels. He spoke to Zechariah through an angel, to Mary, to Joseph for particular reasons, as we'll see. But he doesn't speak to us that way. He is so kind and gracious that he speaks to us through fellow frail human beings, the good news of the gospel. Though he was righteous before God, blameless in all his conversation, yet he could not be without some apprehension at the sight of one whose visage and surrounding luster bespoke him more than human, Matthew Henry says. Ever since man sinned, his mind has been unable to bear the glory of such revelations and his conscience afraid of evil tidings brought by them. Even Daniel himself could not bear it. And for this reason, and this is the great hope, isn't it? For this reason, God chooses to speak to us by men like ourselves, whose terror should not make us afraid. It's so much easier to receive the gospel through a man that you know is as much a sinner as you are, because together we go to the cross of Christ and we find together our hope. No one is elevated greater than the other, but we are together before God sinners, but sinners who have found hope in Jesus Christ. And so that reaction is common. It's expected as we have seen but it is also something that speaks of God's mercy to us, that he does not always reveal these things through angels. And then in verse 13 through 17, the third point is really the message that he brings. And notice how important this is. This is also very common, especially in Revelation when the angel comes and puts his hand on John's shoulder and he says, do not be afraid, stand up, I'm just a creature like you. And so here, the angel, his first word is, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Do not be afraid. I come, is what he's saying, in peace, the peace which God himself is speaking and bringing. 
And so do not be afraid of the one who now speaks through me. And then he says something that has been a subject of great debate among commentators. You can take your choice. I think both could be easily seen in this passage. He says to him, your prayer, Zechariah, has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Now we know that he has been praying with his wife, Elizabeth, for many, many years for a child. Is that the prayer that has finally been heard? You can be sure that Zechariah and Elizabeth were not actively in those days praying any longer for a child. Like Abraham and Sarah, they had long passed the years of giving birth. They had long accepted and learned to be content in this role that God had called them to live. So was it that prayer or was it Zechariah's prayer as a priest in the temple offering incense for the Messiah to come, which is what the priests would have acknowledged and prayed for, longing and looking for the coming of the Messiah, the deliverer who will come as Isaiah 59 spoke. Is that the prayer that God now says through the angel has been heard and in fact will be answered? Well, it seems to me that the emphasis lies more on the prayer for a son, given that this is the actual thing that the angel says. But it could be either one, because either one ushers in, whether it's the son, John, who has a particular purpose and role, or whether it's the Messiah, ultimately, Christ to come, both are going to be fulfilled and both have been heard. And so you think of John's role, his mission, you think of the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah, both of these could be what the angel refers to here. But I think the emphasis probably lies on the son having been spoken of by Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now that brings up another question. It took so long. It took so long for God to answer that prayer if in fact this is what the angel says. And here again, I love what Matthew Henry says so helpfully, just and very briefly. He says, note this, prayers of faith, prayers of faith are filed in heaven and are not forgotten. Though the thing prayed for is not presently given. Prayers made when we were young and coming into the world may be answered when we are old and going out of the world. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful reminder of what God does in prayer? Some of us have labored in prayer for many, many years for the conversion of our children. Do not cease from praying. Continue to pray. Know that your prayers are filed in heaven. I mentioned this as we heard, of course, and we're very involved in the engagement of our daughter. Uh, we have prayed for each of our children's spouses from the moment they were conceived. And it is a joy to be able to say now that from all that God is showing us that the man that we've prayed for for our daughter, Sarah, is Stephen. To see it, to see him, and to know that God has answered our prayer. Prayers of faith are filed in heaven and are not forgotten. Well, there's more that is spoken of here regarding this answer or response of 
uh, or the message that is given. You'll notice in the next verses, he speaks more about John in verse 14 through verse 17. He tells him that he will be a cause of great joy among those who will hear and before the Lord. Now he is the forerunner. He is Malachi's messenger. He is not the angel of the covenant in Malachi, but he is the messenger of the covenant in the sense that he is the forerunner of the Messiah. And so his birth will bring great joy and gladness. Many will rejoice. He seems to be one who will be from his infancy, one who is a Nazarite, taking a Nazarite vow. And even more importantly, and certainly having some bearing upon God's ability, certainly to save our children, even from the womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit the promised Holy Spirit of which Peter speaks of in Acts chapter two, that spirit will fill him from his mother's womb. It will be the cause of the leaping of the child in his mother's womb when Mary visits Elizabeth at the age of six months. He will also fulfill what Malachi said about the forerunner. He will be the one who will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. He will go in the power and spirit of Elijah the prophet, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see, not everyone was like Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna. They were the noteworthy among those who were looking for the consolation of Israel. And so John's ministry of repentance, of preparing the people, the angel says, will be a great ministry that will prepare and make ready a people to receive the Messiah. Well, again, we have fourth in verse 18, we have Zechariah's response. It is stunning as you read it, and maybe it's not as clear as you read it here, but if you compare his response to what Pastor Fisher will say next week, no doubt about Mary's response, they are very different. Mary's is filled of faith. Mary's concern is not whether God will accomplish and do what he has spoken to her through the angel. Her concern was, how will this happen since I have never known a man? Zechariah's response was a response of unbelief. It is stunning, as he says here, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. It is stunning that we see a movement here so quickly from fear before an angel that he knows is from another world and speaks for God, from fear to the folly of unbelief. What Zechariah demanded here and what his question asks in that first part is for proof. Give me proof of what you have said, angel. Give me proof. Mary never asked for proof. She just says, I don't understand how this is going to happen. And the angel's gracious response is indicative that it was not a rebuke of her, but rather it was responding to her concern. It will be the Holy Spirit who will come upon you. Zechariah here demanded proof in his unbelief. Though the appearance of the angel, which had long been disused in the church, was sign enough 
though he had this notice given to him in the temple, the place of God's word and oracles, where he had reason to think no evil angel would be permitted to come, though it was given to him when he was praying and burning incense, and though a firm belief, though a firm belief of that great principle of religion, that God has an almighty power and with him nothing is impossible, which we ought not only to know but to teach others, was enough to silence every objection. Yet he looked too much at his own body and too much at his wife's barrenness, and he became like one unlike Abraham, for he staggered at the promise. You remember those verses, right, from Romans chapter 4 as Paul is using Abraham as an illustration? In hope, he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he looked at and considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Zechariah, righteous as he was, nonetheless was still filled with unbelief, and this response was an indication of his unbelief, and so in verses 19 and 20, we have the angel or the Lord's rebuke. Now notice how it begins. The angel introduces himself finally, and he does so powerfully. He says, I am Gabriel. Now Gabriel is one of, Gabriel is one of the only two angels named in the scriptures. Michael is the other one. Uh, Gabriel here is named. He will be involved in next week as well, as well as in Joseph. It is Gabriel who comes, and he describes himself this way. I stand, my, my whole purpose and existence for being is I stand in the presence of God. That's a glorious picture, isn't it? He stands daily, day and night, 24-7, we would say, in the presence of God, waiting for the order to go and to deliver a message to whomever God would send him. He comes, he is saying through these verses, in God's authority. He's his ambassador, yes, but he comes even more so. The words he speaks are God's words, and that's his rebuke to Zechariah. Don't you understand who I am that I stand in the presence of the most high glorious God and I come at his command to bring this message and notice in verse 19 to bring you this good news. This language is all throughout the New Testament. It means I come to you to preach the gospel. I'm preaching to you the gospel and you doubt my words. And so because you have doubted me, God's answer for proof will be given, but it will be given through the fatherly discipline towards a son, Zechariah, that he loves. This is not a harsh fly-off-the-handle rebuke or discipline. This is the Hebrews 12 discipline of a son that he loves. He sees his frailty, his weakness, his unbelief, and so he answers him for a sign. He says, I will give you a sign. You will be mute, unable to speak, 
We're not going later in the text where he talks about the birth of John the Baptist, but many commentators agree he was not only mute, unable to speak, he was also deaf because how they had to interact with him through writing. And so it is likely that he was both deaf and dumb, unable to speak, until these things take place because, he says, you did not believe my words, which, by the way, Zechariah, will be done despite your unbelief. It will still be accomplished. It will still be done. Again, a great encouraging word from someone who is often so encouraging as you read through your Bible. It's, and I know it's the practice of some of you to often have uh, Matthew Henry right beside you because he's so devotional, so very helpful. And here's what he says regarding this rebuke. He says, God dealt kindly with him, very tenderly and very graciously. First, he prevented his speaking any more such distrustful, unbelieving words. He won't be allowed to speak these unbelieving words anymore. If he had thought evil and will not himself lay his hands on his mouth, nor keep it as with a bridle, God will. It is better not to speak at all than to speak wickedly. Second, thus he confirmed his faith. And by his being disabled to speak, he is enabled to think better. If by the rebukes we are under for our sin, we are brought to give more credit to the word of God, we have no reason to complain of them. In other words, God has a purpose for his discipline that we might trust him all the more. Thirdly, thus he was kept from divulging the vision and boasting of it, which otherwise he would have been apt to do whereas it was designed for the present to be lodged as a secret with him. And then fourthly, it is and was a great mystery that God's words should be fulfilled in their season, not notwithstanding his sinful distrust. The unbelief of man shall not make the promises of God of no effect. They shall be fulfilled in their season, and he shall not be forever dumb, but only until the day that these things shall be performed, and then thy lips shall be opened, thy mouth may show forth God's praise. When God thus chastens the iniquity of his people with the rod, his loving kindness he will never take away. So all of this is for Zechariah's good. And when you get to the birth and you get to his speech, you remember it. His name will be what? What the angel said, it will be John and it will be to the praise and glory of God. And Zechariah will sing of that, and he will speak of that, now able to speak when God accomplished his purpose. So this is the first vision, or the first appearance of an angel that we have and that we're studying this month. Let me give you three things as we prepare to come to the Lord's table to remember. And that first is the appearance of angels itself. I've mentioned that there's no time in history that angels appear more than at the incarnation, privately and publicly, as we will see on Christmas morning to, or Christmas Eve morning, to the shepherds in the fields. It's worth noting that apart from the second coming, this is the place where we see angels appear more frequently, taking on a shape and a form so that they are visibly seen by human beings. It's in all of our great hymns of this season, things that we'll be singing tonight and over the coming weeks. 
What, what is the Lord teaching us through this great appearance of angels? It is meant to teach the church that the Messiah was no angel, but the Lord of angels as well as of men. Angels announced his coming. Angels proclaimed his birth. Angels rejoiced at his appearing and by doing so made it plain that when he who came to die for sinners was not of themselves, but for above them, the King of kings and Lord of lords. They take as angels, as creatures, deep interest in the work of Christ and the salvation which Christ has provided. They sung high praises of the Son of God come down to make peace with his own blood between God and man. They rejoice when sinners repent and sons are born again to our Father in heaven. They delight to, to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation. Let us then strive to be like them while we are here on earth, to be of their mind and to share their joys. This is the way to be in tune with heaven. And brothers and sisters, we have this month great opportunities to do so as we gather together in this season to join in the glorious angel-like praise of our great God. We have a hymn sing tonight. Come and join in the singing of these hymns and the rejoicing of what God has done in Christ. We have an open house next week to share together in the joys of the season, a sacred concert the week after Christmas Eve service Christmas worship the whole of the day on Christmas Eve. Come and be part of that and participate in it, even as the angels in heaven delight to do so before the throne of our King. And so come. Secondly, unbelief, unbelief can in fact be present even in the lives of the righteous. Don't be surprised when unbelief sometimes shows its ugly head in your life as it does so often in mine. Here is a both a great discouragement as well as an encouragement. The encouragement, of course, is that we are, if we are united to Christ, we are the righteous, not of our own doing, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. The discouragement is that we so often see this unbelief we see it in Abraham that we spoke of earlier when he lied two times and did not trust God for Sarah's safety. We see it in Moses, the great man of God, as he struck the rock instead of doing what God told him to do and speak to it. We see it certainly in David and his great sins. We see it, of course, in all the disciples as they abandoned Christ during his earthly ministry we see it in all the saints who have ever lived, and we see it in ourselves. And so let our prayer be as human beings saved by the grace of God. Lord, I do believe, but help thou my unbelief. God is gracious as he was to Zechariah. He is gracious to discipline us, to chide us, to shape and mold us into the image of his son through his providential sort of work in our lives to rebuke us and ultimately to strengthen us. And so trust in the God that treats us as we are in Christ with great compassion and love. Finally, God's word is true. That's the lesson I think that's the focus here for Zechariah. 
It's not for Mary as much because Mary believed. For Zechariah, he needed to know that God's word is true. The angels of God speak what God tells them to speak. They do not speak on their own. They don't come with their own ideas. They bear testimony to the truth that God has already revealed in his word. That's why Paul said to the Galatians, even if an angel from heaven should come and preach to you a gospel that is contrary to the one that we preached, let him, the angel, be accursed. God's word is true. It is to be believed, obeyed, followed, delighted in. And so let us be a people who do all of that. There's a great book, and I've recommended it to some people. And perhaps if you haven't read it, you might read it even this season. It's called My God is True, Lessons Learned Along Cancer's Dark Road. PCA Pastor Paul Wolf, who serves in Virginia, is the pastor who wrote that. He was diagnosed with cancer. It was serious. He was expecting to die, and he spent that whole time considering God's word. And he wrote this book to basically say in the midst of the severest trial he had ever experienced in his life, he came to understand that God's word is true. And by faith and with complete confidence, he rested in what God had spoken. May the same be true for us, that we would know, no matter what we're going through now, that God's word is true, and it is worthy of our trust now and always. Though we may never in this life encounter an angel, let us always remember what the writer to Hebrews says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. It's unlikely that any of us will ever see an angel and at least know it. But let us remember that we have a more sure word given to us by God, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so that unbelief be not given a place in our hearts. Interest in angels, R.C. Sproul wrote, is an all-time high in our culture. Many people long to have an encounter with them. However, while seeing an angel would be a quite remarkable and, by the way, fear-filled event, even the angels themselves are far more concerned that we heed God's message to us than that they are seen by us face to face. There will come a time, brothers and sisters, where we will see angels in the presence of God who stand at his right hand who are sent as messengers who minister to the saints. But until then, let us heed the word of God that he has given to us in his word. Let us pray. Father, we are so very, very thankful that you have given us a more certain and sure word, even than the words of angels. This word, Father, that you have given to us is a word upon which our lives can be built where we have hope, steadfast, confident hope in the God who has made promises and who will, in fact, bring them to pass despite our unbelief at times. Forgive us for that unbelief. Make us to be a people who delight in the things of Christ and all that is revealed to us in your word. And we pray your blessing upon us to that end, even as we prepare now to come 
to this visible means of your grace, this picture of your word and the certainty and surety of it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.